It's that partnership between tech and innovation and design. And I've been saying it for decades, but I finally feel it's happening. I feel I've been pushing at a door that's been very stiff to open. And often I had to go in on my own <laughs> in a Trojan horse and try and affect those organizations. But now that door is opening much more readily. Welcome to the XLab Sparking Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Wood. And today, uh, unusually, we're not coming from the junction between the City of London and uh, Silicon Roundabout. We're actually coming from Wimbledon and uh, from my house uh, due to the uh, COVID uh, issue. As usual, we're looking at the topic of tech-enabled innovation and how firms are embracing new technology to drive better experiences and create new value for customers. And today I'm joined by the renowned uh, designer, uh, Clive Grenier. Hello, Clive. Hello. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing very well. And thank you very much for joining us for the uh, the first remote recording of Sparky Innovation. Now, for those uh, who, who don't know Clive, I think it's probably worth sort of delving into your your background just so people understand why we describe you as a, as a design luminary, Clive. You just want to talk about the beginning of your uh, career. Where did you study uh, and what were your first steps into the world of, of design and business? Sure. I prefer being called a luminary than a veteran, which I'm often called. Um, <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, my uh, my uh, career uh, has been incredibly diverse, actually, and I feel very, very lucky for that and taking me to many, many places. But it started off at the Central uh, St. Martins or School of Art and Design, as it was then, uh, where I studied industrial design. Uh, not uncommon for many industrial designers and product designers to find themselves um, moving into other areas, especially uh, technology and especially um, human-centered design and service design. I was very lucky and very early in my career, spent a lot of time in San Francisco with a guy called Bill Moggridge, who from the design perspective is uh, often cited as the, the founder of what was then called interaction design, we would now call user interface, user experience. Um, and he discovered whilst designing the world's first laptop the grid computer, yeah. um, that actually the, the product wasn't so important. It was what was on the screen uh, and the interface, which, of course, there weren't very many good ones. I then went on and I spent a bit of time with a, on the Science Park in Cambridge with a company called Cambridge Consultants before founding my own design company called Tangerine, which is, again, was a product design company with a, a young, um, very brilliant designer called Johnny Ive. Now, of course, Sir Johnny Ive, who's become a lot more famous and richer than I have, but that's that's fine. <laughs> You used to have um, more and, hair though, Clive. So well, I do, I do. It's true. Yes, we've still got the first Christmas card when he did have hair. I shall auction it off at some point. Well, yeah, There's um, your, pen, your pension sorted out. That's right. That's right. So then, really, uh, my career sort of took an interesting twist. I did spend some time back in IDEO, back in California running a kind of combined in-house team with Samsung. So I then returned to London uh, and we're talking sort of mid to late 90s now and set up Samsung's design office in London, which has become a hugely successful thing um, for Samsung and really, really helped them uh, build their presence in the UK by design. Um, and that was a very exciting period. Uh, and from then on, I worked with people like Tag McLaren, the Formula One team who wanted to design Hi-Fi and the Design Council. I've always enjoyed talking about design and I spent three years there and then shifted towards 
towards a different type of design when I was appointed by Orange to set up their first, what we then called design and usability team. And that was really interesting in bringing in the whole science really of usability into the mobile world, which hadn't really considered that. I remember at the time, people thought that Nokia phones were used to text more merely because Nokia users were cooler and hipper than a Motorola. Um, users. Um, and when I was able to prove that it was down to the usability, that was actually quite a big moment. Um, and it was, a, you know, suddenly design had a reason to exist rather than just being a nice to have in that technology world. Yeah. I went on to work with Cisco and then uh, the last five years with Barclays running a digital team and then setting up a service design team, which I can explain in more detail later. And here I am now as head of service design at the Royal College of Art, where I've been since uh, September last year. So it's still only my second term and they've been pretty roller coaster terms so far. I, I think that uh, we're plugged into a lot of the universities around, uh, around the world. I think just coping with distance learning and uh, especially for designers where the crit and the interpersonal relationship and the dialogue dialogue is so much part of that learning experience it, it's been a real challenge so uh designers love challenges and it's always this is like a meta challenge for the design community so indeed you, indeed if you think back to um you mentioned your role at samsung we've got a, a real um, technology first company there um how did you find the the role of design uh within samsung when you arrived was it prominent was it were you a second fiddle or is it something that was just there to make things look nice so the interesting challenge with samsung was that it was um you know just beginning to enter into international markets and I think the role was really seen as somebody who would go out and, and report back on what design trends were so that the headquarter design team would then create some responses. Well, I clearly wasn't going to put up with that. Um, and so very quickly built a small but very, very high quality design team. And we started designing things for the European market and started winning design awards for it. So uh, Samsung took note really from that success. And uh, we very quickly built the right, I suppose, to interpret their technology in a way that fitted European markets much better. Uh, and and that was, that's that was a, hugely exciting. And that's a fantastic segue into the topic we'll be covering on the podcast, looking at the role of design in innovation projects, because typically you know, the, the, the role of design has been the lipstick on the pig. Can you come in and make this suitable for this type of user or that type of market, rather than being brought in right at the beginning in terms of problem solving? Uh, and back to sort of the idea and the Bill Moggeridge, you know, uh, how might we address this type of problem? Do you think that designers as a as a group tend to be a little bit more feisty because they they typically face this? Um, can you come in and make it aesthetic rather than can you come in here and help us to make a product or a technology deliver more value for customers, colleagues uh, and companies? I think there's many reasons why they're feisty. Um, I mean, I don't think I've ever actually been invited to do the job I ended up doing. You know, the, the, I tended to go in, realize what needed to be done and helped those organizations do, do a number of really critical things around innovation. I mean, clearly there is the lipstick on the pig angle where you're given something, uh, but there's very little choice left to do with it to really draw it back into a, to a valuable product or service. So helping people understand the more strategic aspect 
of design is is usually a surprise to organizations and and as a designer you never get asked for it so you have to go and give it regardless um, and help people see that the thing that's fascinated me over the years working with so many innovative companies is that they you know they don't often understand the the real applications the real value in what they're doing um, and they certainly don't understand that actually they are playing a major role in the success of the design through the decisions they make so I've always been fascinated in actually embracing design right the way through leadership right the way down to procurement as a product designer if I designed a beautiful product and, and the guy in purchasing went and got some really cheap screws you know I needed to talk to him and make him or her understand that that actually was quite important to get right too so there's always been this sort of working right at the high level and working down to the mm-hmm. lowest level to help everyone understand they have a role actually in making this design and innovation effective and usable and for me the great purpose of design and innovation is actually making sure people use it and it's usable in the way they want it and i've seen so much technology and so much innovation fail uh, because it hasn't been designed from a human-centric point of view, it hasn't understand the context of use, or even the problems that people are actually trying to f- use that technology to solve. Uh, and these seem very fundamental questions, almost common sense. And people often say to me, but it's all common sense, Clive. And I say, yes, well, why don't you do it then? No, <laughs> because absolutely. unfortunately, very few people really do. <laughs> So it's this sense of uh, design being that golden thread that runs end to end through a project rather than uh, something that comes in at a specific phase and then withdraws. But but also I, I like your uh, your procurement story because it shows that there are elements of design that everyone has access to. Everyone can play a role in. And design isn't something that you can only do if you're wearing a black polar neck. It's something where you've got to understand human factors and what drives value in products and services. And and everyone has a role to do in that. And and I think that's something that, from my experience, has become uh, an easier statement to say in businesses. And one of the things that's helped that is design thinking. And I know the design community has an interesting relationship with design thinking. Yes, yes. Um, and I don't, I've never quite understood it with a lot of designers who are very much more concerned with their particular craft, for example, um, and don't f- always feel comfortable that design applies to broader topics. But uh, running service design at the Royal College of Art, I am constantly approached by huge companies who have no idea what the future is going to hold for them or um, charities and cities and governmental organizations who want actually creativity, the ability to give them some choice that they hadn't thought of themselves, and to actually take part. It's a very collaborative thing, design thinking. And we're able to apply it to such an incredibly broad range of topics and succeed in that, that uh, I have no uh, I have no problem with it myself. We are applying design thinking to very real situations. And do you think that the, the design thinking movement has actually shifted people's perception of the role that design can play in an innovation process? I think mostly it has. You know, I, was, I did a online lecture with uh, or chat really with Tim Brown, the uh, CEO of, of IDEO just last week and we you know he's he wrote one of the original sort of books that launched design thinking called change by design and you know it is incredible how in in the worlds that he moves in the worlds that i move in it is taken for granted this is no longer up up for for grabs we know that we have to think differently we have to think about humans on all sides of an organization and we have to think about technology holistically and use design tools to help us do that better that's all 
we're talking about here. And I think it has been hugely effective and we are constantly approached. And for me, I'm very glad to say my students have a 100% employment record the minute they leave the two years master's course. They're out there working for large organisations, small organisations, governments, every single aspect of life has RCA graduates in there helping people create better solutions. I think that... uh... In the last 10 years, we've seen organisations where you wouldn't have expected to find someone with a job title designer actually featuring. And in other organisations, you've got, you know, if you think about Lloyd's, Lloyd's has a chief design officer uh, and uh, some of the pharmaceutical uh, companies as well. And there's nothing more human centric than pharmaceuticals, but it's, it's a relatively recent thing. But a fundamental one that hopefully gives design slightly more leverage to drive the value that it, that it always could have done. Yes, I think it's important we, you know, we don't treat design as some fantastic, you know, panacea for all known things. I think it's a fantastically valuable tool we cannot do without, and we've t- we've done without it for for too long. Um, it's part of the mix, and I think it's very important. This is not a fad. You know, we've been doing service design and design thinking at the RCA for the last eight years or so, and it's just grown and grown in impact. And across the board, as you say, banks like Lloyd's with their chief design officers are now becoming reasonably commonplace. Often, you know, there's two classes for me. There are those organizations who are very stuck in an old way of thinking and trying to get out of it, and they need some new ideas. And then there are organizations that are really inventing the new, and they need to make sure that new is usable, uh, design desirable as well as being viable and feasible and if you have you know we teach all the time that you need those three things viability of business feasibility of technology and desirability and if any of those are out of kilter you're not going to succeed Um, and in the past we've had too much viability and feasibility and not enough desirability and it takes a different thought process a different mind I'm, uh, I'm envisioning those three intersecting balls at this very moment, Clive. And uh, indeed, I yes, think... you've seen you've seen the slide. Ah, <laughs> oh, the, the the number of powerpoints I've done with three balls on them are, uh, yeah, are legion, <laughs> legion, Clive. And and I think coming from a tech background Good. as well, you know, this idea of desirability. There's a lot of excitement about new technologies, about emerging technologies, and there there's a mantra: if we build it, they will come. But if they come, how long do they stay? And um, um, why are they coming? Uh, what's the value they're getting? Uh, and do they understand that value from the offset? So I think many tech businesses are still wrestling with the, the role that design plays in new product development when it comes to emerging technology. Typically, the first stages um, with the technology are, well, the engineers either bring it to the table or the engineers are let loose on the technology. And then for, after a while, it's, okay, how do we create a use case around this technology? But by that stage, typically, you've got a few prototypes and a few MVPs that have already sort of set the boundaries and have built mental models around how tech can be used on what it's there for. Have you found any companies that are are bringing in design at an early stage in the innovation cycle to offer really disruptive alternatives for business? Uh, The honest truth is not many. (laughs) Um, And I think that's that's 
very troubling, actually. I think there are huge problems to all the uh, to the scenario you've just mapped out, actually. I think that the culture of technology can be very undiverse. And I don't mean simply gender or race. I mean mindset diversity. I think uh, the, the cultures of so many tech companies are very fixed. And the, the mindset of designers is very different. And bringing those together can be extremely difficult. It is very interesting to see the financial services industry actually be able to do it quite well. So I think that is that is happening. Um, and also some of the big consultancies where they have a strong technological digital foundation, but they are bringing in very talented designers as well. So there are there are some good good things going on there. But I think in the majority of cases that the, the cultural mindset is one thing. At the heart of design thinking is the, the diagram, actually, that I worked on at the Design Council, the double diamond that says you've got to discover what you're actually trying to solve. And you've got to frame your question, if you like, before you go and have a solution and deliver it and go agile. And I think we live in a world where concepts such as agility, where the only you know metric is velocity of development, regardless of what it is, is dangerous, if I'm honest. And it creates a culture where any kind of design activity where you might be asking, hang on a minute, are you actually answering the right question here? Have you actually understood what the problem really is? That is seen as, as something that slows down the velocity of development. I think ultimately, I think design and design thinking's value as a risk management tool. It stops you building something stupid. <laughs> and, and an awful lot of people are building something stupid right now. And I think for me, it's a risk management tool to make sure what you build it has a much better chance of success. You've thought about mm. it. You've tested it. You've designed many things and come down to one. This divergent and convergent thinking that's at the heart of design thinking and design practice is absolutely critical for technology. But it needs a, a bit of a cultural epiphany on behalf of a CEO or, or, or somebody in the organization to really embrace it. And go with it and if you're talking to the cfo the easiest way to bring about that epiphany is saying actually we'd much rather fail when we're drawing things on paper than when we've coded stuff taken it to market and we're doing sort of the first release it's not a great time to find out that maybe we haven't quite understood the problem yes. statement as well as we could have done so i, I think yeah exactly yes it's the, the people who typically say can we get that screw for slightly less money if we make it out of a lower quality uh, material who are the ones to say actually i'd much rather do this five times for a dollar than once for a million dollars and if if one of those <laughs> is wrong then you know it's 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 much easier to write off a dollar than it is a million dollars so if we think back to organizations that are baking in design to the early stages around innovation it sort of takes you back to some of the work that was done at, at, at phillips with their speculative design group probably eight nine years ago that was seen as something that mm. we felt that more businesses would adopt is a little bit wild and woolly and massively imaginative and, and came up with some interesting predictions that have actually come true, but that didn't really take off. Do you think that was a little bit, no. was it too aspirational? Was it too academic? Or is this something that we're going to see coming back onto corporate agendas as there's more pressure to diversify and do disruptive and radical things? That was a very exciting time, but it's quite interesting to me how the European design model actually failed there. I think Olivetti, of course, was the other great failure. Um, mm -hmm. 
fact, some of those Philips design visions were done in, in collaboration with Olivetti, I believe. But although they were wonderful and have in, in time become true, if you are dislocated from real innovation development, then it becomes irrelevant. It's nice to have a vision, but we really have to work out why that's of value. And I did loads of full screen mobile phones for lots of people before Steve Jobs actually developed it. <laughs> you know, um, we have lots of drawings of those sort of future visions of what mobile phones might be. And, you know, very often we heard that no phone will ever have not have 12 buttons. I remember that quote quite, quite mm -hmm. strongly. But um, but it didn't matter that we'd imagined it. It has to be hand in hand with technology. It has to be hand in hand with development. And I think that's why it has been people like Apple who, you know, who have created that future. So what we have with design at the moment, it's quite interesting. Most of my service design and design thinking projects that I'm aware of are actually fixing the basics. So many things don't work as a result of being rapidly developed the wrong way that an awful lot of designers are now helping people understand why things are going wrong. My previous company, Barclays, which is a technology company that thinks it's a bank, has a huge amount of technology development there. Um, and yet a lot of, you know, solutionizing without really understanding the problem in the past uh, uh, and a lot of sort of false starts from a, from a technology and innovation point of view. When you have the two things really working together and we did fix a lot of basics and then we began to develop new things in a much more incremental, organic way, I think we're seeing that as being the way when you do have design and innovation hand in glove together you have a much better outcome and interestingly the kind of future vision that you described that Philips had developed as you say a decade ago or so that has been replaced by a new style of future gazing called uh, speculative design critical design where we try and look at the future and make it a little bit less positive sometimes sometimes we try and build in some of the some of the things that might go wrong again it's that risk methodology sort of trying to work out what we need to take care of. The big poster services that came out of the advent of service design were, for example, Uber and Airbnb. And we all cheered them for years until suddenly there were riots in Barcelona and... <clears throat> And London is threatening to close down Uber in the city. So, you know, you have to look and speculative design is looking at the first and second horizons, a much longer time frame, but in, in a perhaps more useful way than just creating a, a sort of um, wonderful future science fi, sci-fi uh, sci vision of the future. Absolutely. I can feel those weak signals coming in and, and potentially a, a plug for the uh, RCA's own Dun and Raby. <laughs> but we'll, we'll move away from that, Clive, uh, as this is a community podcast rather than one for shameful plugging but there we go um so if we think about we've used the term service design and and i think we met through uh, the service design network and um, do you mm. think the concept of service design is understood uh, when it comes to sort of corporate innovation as experiences or digital experiences underpinned by technology become what's asked for rather than yeah. product Yes. Um, well, I, th I don't think it's that well understood. Most people wouldn't understand it. Luckily, there are enough people who understand it to come and keep us busy and employ our students. But I, the interesting thing is it's really, for me, so many of these design activities are completely interconnected. Um, it is sometimes frustrating that we have to call them different things. 
But at the same time, if we think about digital transformation, you know, that is a journey that many companies are going on. They are understanding that their conventional channels can be entirely be replaced by digital and examples like the government digital services in the UK, GDS, are certainly one of the most successful and fantastic examples of where so many archaic things with bits of paper you have to send all over the place have been brilliantly replaced by digital. But service takes an even broader view you and you know i can think of many examples from my barclays experience where the answer was not digital the answer was somebody in risk and compliance you know needing to change a decision they made 10 years ago that had resulted in customers having an utterly miserable customer experience and i'm sure anyone listening to this podcast can probably immediately relate to that you know there's lots of legacy there's lots of decisions that lots of people make in any kind of organizational delivery that aren't only digital and can't simply be replaced by digital Um, but digital could be a major component in it so service design takes a more fundamental look it looks right across the journey that customers have from their perspective analyzes what currently is wrong with that journey perhaps or where there are opportunities for it to be amazing and then creates that vision of a at a full customer experience, full service level, of which many aspects of an organization might be absolutely critical in delivering that. And I think that it's really important that you've stressed the fact that when you look at a problem from a service design perspective, the answer won't necessarily have a plug on the end of it. It won't be code. It won't be technology. (laughs) Technology is always an enabler and delivering services and the way that most individuals engage with organizations. But I think you mentioned it right at the beginning. It's not a panacea. So if we think about the organizations that you think are combining design within their innovation approach well, who would you say the the leading, the poster children are for design within innovation programs? Um, Well, I do see some amazing work coming out of um, some of the consultancies, funnily enough, and the work they are doing for, let's say, bulb energy um, or octopus energy, um, you know, suddenly you see businesses where their churn and their ability, the whole industry, the ability to switch is fundamental. Therefore, certain parts of the experience require an amazing amount of effort. So in the energy system, we've seen that with new startups and creating differentiation by fantastic onboarding experience. You know, in other areas, it's not just the onboarding that's important. It's a much broader thing. But then again, I found it very interesting to see technology consultancies increasingly bringing in design thinking to differentiate what they do, create a more attractive and compelling thought leadership around future scenarios and how technology will get there and help people not just to code that technology, but to actually deliver it and actually overcoming the problem that I referred to earlier about sort of cultural lack of diversity in a tech an innovation environment. So I wish I had millions of examples, but I've already mentioned GDS and the government and their innovation yep. in terms of services. And of course, you know, we, we carry on seeing the apples of this world doing a good job from a from a product perspective. But I think we're all aware now that what a product means, what a service means is becoming very merged, very fuzzy. You know, somebody like Amazon are using their amazing platforms for all sorts of different things now. And they're doing it very, very well to the point of total world domination. It might not be beautiful, but there is a lot of service design, a lot of design thinking in there. 
exactly so it, it, it looks fairly ugly on the uh, on the surface but actually if you look at the way it's tailored underneath it it's elegant and and smart yes. all in equal right. proportions um, so going back to this idea that sort of we've seen a lot of consolidation uh, in of the design sector uh, gobbled up by the, the larger consultancies. And we mentioned Fjord with um, Accenture, and we've also got Designit and Idea Couture were brought up a few years back, and Bio in the UK. If you look out of the Vertusa office windows, you can see uh, the Designit office, you can see the Bio office, you can see um, all the guys on Curtin Road who uh, once were independent and are now part of things like EY Saren. Do you think that this assimilation by large firms is going to lead to the larger firms being able to blend their approach with design? Or do you think it's going to sort of beat the soul out of the, the, the small firms where culture was probably a, a very distinct thing? Um, in, in a funny way, I remember decades ago, I mentioned at the beginning that I've spent some time in Cambridge on the Cambridge Science Park with Cambridge Consultants. Ooh. And it was very interesting to me that as a designer, I was suddenly working with companies who would never have rung up a design agency, <laughs> but they would have rung up a tech agency or an engineering agency. And so I was able to access a much broader audience. And I think it's um, you know very interesting that uh, I've spent most of my life these days working on um, working on zoom looking at uh, you know enormous numbers of people sharing video conferences with me and it i reflect that um the zoom founder was at cisco uh, for a long time which was a very tech organization that absolutely rejected any design thinking it was quite a lonely life i had there <laughs> um, however you know suddenly you find zoom as the antidote to some of the other products <laughs> that cisco provide and you see the influence that design can have and luckily there was somebody in that company who realized they could do it better they had to leave and do a startup to do it but i think the influence through these big agencies or small agencies who've gone into big companies is is helping big companies see there are alternatives and that actually it's that partnership between tech and innovation and design and i've been saying it for decades but i funnily enough i finally feel it's happening i feel i've been pushing at a door that's that's been very stiff to open and often i had to go in on my own <laughs> in a trojan horse and try and affect mm. those organizations but now that door is opening much more readily i think that is having a really really positive effect on the downside, there's an awful lot of activity going on. We often talk about the amount of service design that's being hired in or the number of designers inside really quite big organizations now. And yet, you know, and yet, has there really been a big change? It's still quite difficult to, to see that organizations are really able to make the change. And a, a friend of mine the other day described it as organ failure. You go in, you do a fantastic job. The user testing is brilliant. And within within 18 months, it's all gone back to normal. And I think yeah. that's the danger. That's a real danger. And how, so we, we, we must make sure, because this isn't a fad, but we must make sure the transformation we design into an organization somehow sustains. And that's probably leadership and hiring the right people and making people really aware of the importance of this additional way of thinking to what they normally do.
it's a question of commitment, isn't it? You can always make that. I always say that you can buy as many diet books and uh, trousers in smaller sizes as you really want. But until you've actually made that commitment to a long term change in your sedentary lifestyle <laughs> or and I'm talking from personal experience here, Clive, as you can, as you can tell. But it's, it's that you know, fundamental change rather than saying, yes, we are now a, a design led company because we've hired four designers, but we've got 20,000 uh, engineers. It's actually working out how are we going to get best use and best value out of our design resources over a, a long period and what changes do we need to make across people process and technology to enable these people to do a great job for us that's absolutely right i brought some brilliant designers into into barclays but the culture was very unfriendly to them and they they left quite quickly and and so there's some very fundamental things that organizations need to do to get their money's worth out of this absolutely and we always call our designers uh, design pioneers to give them a view that in, in many tech companies, you've still got to have a, an element of uh, being an evangelist. You've got to promote the value that you're bringing as much as you have to actually execute the work so that people are continually reminded about why you're there at the table. Because I, I, I yes. still think even if you've got members at the board table with design in their, in their title, you've still got to reinforce the fact, you know, this is why we're here. This is what we can add. Uh, and this is what would happen if we weren't there. Yes, I think that's right. I, I put it in four ways, if I can, if I can briefly do this. Um, I, I say that designers need to have the curiosity to really find out what's going on and where the opportunities are, the courage to tell people the truth, and that isn't always very easy. Um, they then need creativity, and that's a, a, a collaborative creativity to help bring the best out of everybody to create new ideas. And they need that sort of openness um, to take to take people on that journey. Uh, so yes, they are evangelists and yes, they are pioneers. But I think we also have to realise design is not um, something you do mystically at the top of a mountain anymore. It's not something that you come in and whip a curtain off and say, there it is, there's the vision. <laughs> it's much fuzzier. It's much more collaborative. Designers have much smaller egos than they used to. And they're much more about facilitators of a creative process to take everybody on that journey. So yeah, don't worry, guys. Indeed. Fantastic. So we've mentioned your new role at the RCA a couple of times during the podcast. And I think when you move into sort of higher education and you get in touch with sort of the next generation of designers, certainly uh, often you find that uh, their worldview, their view of you know what design can be, what design can do is slightly different uh, um, the way it was perceived maybe you know, in, for other generations. How do your students now view their role in corporate innovation programs? So most students um, uh, want to save the world in some way or another. Right. <laughs> so and and think they can do that. I think um, a fair proportion of them embrace and realise that the way to save the world is to is to get into the world and be part you know, of the creativity of organisations, whatever they might be. Um, I think the problem I have is making sure they are resilient enough for the reality of that, because it, it, it is a tough job being a designer in an organisation. GDS, Government Digital Services in the UK, used to have five sort of interesting rules, you know, think about the user, design with data. And the last one was be nice to yourself because it's going to be tough. You're going to you're going to take it far too seriously and get upset when things go wrong. So um, so building resilience. And I think 
we need to make some improvements in in helping organizations embrace some of the things that we're talking about in this podcast. I'm working with a very big organization in the UK, I won't say their name, who is actually very pioneering in bringing in design thinkers right to the heart of the technology, uh, not, not necessarily customer facing, but business to business facing, working with huge numbers of technology teams who are very much of an old view that design was superficial and only asked in mm. at the end to make the icon nice or something like that. So there are organizations who are really pioneering this, but it's still early days. But from a student perspective, they are optimistic beyond belief. Right now, they are talented beyond belief you know most of them actually know how to code they can pull out a website and pull out an app you know in no time but that doesn't interest them they want to go beyond that they want to go beyond their user interface design they want to go beyond their core educational experience up to now and really embrace and i think that's what's so exciting about design thinking and service design is you can solve bigger problems and you can do it with many other people and have a great time doing it and it's very very satisfying so they're they're ready to go and change the world we just want to make sure the world wants them I can feel the P word creeping in here. Um, I can feel purpose um, entering into the podcast. <laughs> As, whenever we sit down, we do um, sort of portfolio reviews with students. Uh, a lot of the things that they want from uh, an employer is to work for a purpose-driven employer. And hmm. we know that they're you know, in the the. the the third sector, there are lots of great design jobs, but we also know you, you mentioned Barclays, Samsung, Cisco. There are lots of commercial organizations that, that really need fresh thinking and they need designers. How do tech companies make themselves more appealing to the fresh graduates that you're teaching, Clive? Mm, I think that one of the main things they can do is to just just talk to them first of all um, I, i've been really encouraged where companies who you might have expected would really not want a, a designer to come and work with them when it's happened it's always a brilliant experience it's always fun it's always creative and and people get very excited and say we've never had so many ideas in one day or something you know like that so i think design is something to embrace and try out um uh, and try and experience whether it's whether it's an agency, whether you take a student as an intern. You know, I've seen so many successful stories of people going in just for a month or so and staying for life kind of thing. And I think it's just we just need to uh, be slightly braver about embracing design and less restrictive about what we perceive as its value and where it should go in an organization. Most of the uh, young designers I've ever met are charming, funny, brilliant, creative and just fun to have around. And I think um, put put our prejudices to one side and, and experience it, because I think you'll be amazed at how beneficial it can be. And not not in any way intruding into the skills and expertise of brilliant technology companies, personnel and an experience, but something that's very complementary, something that adds to it. And I think it unlocks people's creativity and, and humanity in a way that's really positive for an organisation. Um, so, Clive, as we wind up for the podcast, we've spoken a little bit about your history as a designer, how you've come in to take design as a, an evangelist into tech forward businesses and brought them around to see how design can add value uh, and to drive innovation. Uh, and we've talked about how the new designers that you're working with now, the new blood view corporate innovation programs. 
if we could finally focus on your vision for how corporate innovation is going to evolve over the next three to five years, what do you think are going to be the major changes that we're going to see? Well, I'm very positive. I'm very optimistic of the future for, for a variety of reasons. I think everyone's learned a lot over the last few decades. I mean, it was very interesting for me working with Cisco when the Internet of Things was was dawning and it was all very exciting. And yet, you know, it's sort of lack of traction in many ways has been because of some very human qualities such as do we trust what you're doing with our data? Do we trust the decisions that AI is making? You know, we're, li we're living during a period of immense technical capability, but also I think the increasingly growing realisation that it is the human reaction to that that will make it successful or not. So I think and I perceive quite strongly the signals of uh, a much more holistic view of how we don't just just develop technology and launch it out there with our fingers crossed, but can create new types of organizations that to be successful will bring those two different cultures together will collaborate much more closely because nobody wants to develop amazing technology to have this incredible scenario that we have now with with AI and so many, so many options available to us. Networks that allow us to have these amazing uh, Zoom experiences that we're currently having. It's an amazing time. Um, and yet we must make sure that it has real value. And I think organizations are not stupid and they are beginning to realize that the world is not black or white. You need diversity in your people who who you employ and how you develop solutions to things you haven't even thought of yet and a solution is it's not the technology the technology is the enabler of the, of the ways we will solve the different problems of the world it is not the thing uh, and just like I would say design is not the thing it's just a tool to help you get the most out of that technology it's that mindset we need and I'm very optimistic that organizations get that they finally finally get it. In a way, innovation has matured. Differentiation is not simply from a piece of technology or a piece of innovation. It's about how well you apply it, how well you scale it, how well you become a platform. And, and in that world, I think we can we can really collaborate well together to make some some great new solutions, some great new experiences that everybody will will adopt and love. That's, I think that's, uh, that's a, a good and optimistic view. Um, if we think about what's happening with technology and the cost to do a technical project. I think the the emergence of cloud platforms and, and component-based development and low-code, no-code mm. development. If we then combine yeah. that with what we talked about earlier around the, you know, at, at last the design community are, are getting paid in parity with their tech colleagues, suddenly the cost of bringing design is, is going up, but the, the cost of doing tech development is going down. If suddenly we come back to the the bean counting FD who looks at these two things. Can you see any scenario where actually going, you know, tech first and then and then bringing design in afterwards, we're going to revert to that model? Or do you think that there's been a fundamental change and the penny has dropped? That's an interesting scenario, but it, it's it's not one I'm worried about. I mean, at the moment, I think the proportion of designers to tech developers 
I, I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's something like one to a hundred. There's still a massive disparity there. Um, and the world needs a lot more designers to get anywhere near, um, you know, the amount of work there is to do. So uh, I, I still see technology as remarkably inefficient, actually, because of the sheer numbers of people who are doing it. I think you're right. It will get more efficient, um, but it's still managing that risk. You know, how much stuff do you put out? that's wrong before you get it right. That's still an equation that works for me. And the cost of design is so cheap uh, in terms of prototyping and, and testing the investment required to find out whether you're making the right thing and people are actually going to use it and it's going to work in the way you want is still minuscule compared to tech development, no matter how Absolutely. cheap it's becoming. The cost of not doing it is enormous. Absolutely. So we come back to this idea that faster and higher volume doesn't always mean better. And we have our three balls again of feasible, viable and desirable. And unless they're unless they're locked in the right sort of balance, you're going to end up with lots of shelfware and lots of dissatisfied yes. users. This brings us to the top of the hour. And so thank you very much for uh, for tuning in to the XLab Sparky Innovation Podcast. I'd like to thank Clive Grinier, who's been a fantastic guest, um, talking about the rise of design, design with innovation uh, programs, and also giving us a, a fantastic view into what his students at the RCA see when they look at tech and tech-driven innovation projects. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.